0: Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories.
1: Hi, this is Ollie France, British adventurer and mountain leader. And today, for the Adventure Sports Podcast, I'm going to read an extract from my recently released book, The Trail of the Mountain Folk, in which I detail my solo journey along the mountainous spine of Asia from Hong Kong to Istanbul in 2016. This extract comes from Chapter 7. I found the nomad by the stove the next morning, gazing into a blizzard. I wore all the clothes I owned, for the nomad though. His yak wool tuba was enough. We set out from the guesthouse and made the short walk towards the bus station. This cold, in the dead of Tibetan winter, was more intense than any climate I have experienced before. It, like a school of piranhas, gnawed into the flesh. Wait here, the nomad told me, pointing behind the ticket office. I gave him some Chinese yuan. He returned with a ticket in his hand and a smile on his face. There is your bus, he pointed to an old vehicle, whose engine was already chugging. Several shrouded faces peered through the windows. Good luck, my friend, said the nomad, extending his hand. And remember, you are very welcome here in Tibet. We shook hands, and I thanked the nomad before slipping onto my bus. Shortly, we ventured from the shelter of the town and along an exposed plateau road. Wind and snow formed mesmerizing patterns on the deserted highway ahead. Inside the bus, the faces of Tibetan locals betrayed intense introspection and moments of euphoric stupor. Inertia overcame their bodies, except for the whirling prayer wheels in their hands and the devout hum of their rumbling lips. Outside, the wind was shrill. Snowflakes whistled around the cabin as passengers released prayer flags through open windows. Meanwhile, I remained still amongst them all, entranced by the beating chords of Tibet. The bus halted and its door screeched open. I followed a corpulent old nomad onto the roadside. A roaring wind tugged his hair and clothes, but he marched on, his mantra unbroken. From here, a narrow side road twisted for three miles into Langmuci. Where this road bent in the distance, I spotted a police checkpoint lying in wait. The old nomad flagged down a passing car. I thought he was oblivious of me, but he turned and encouraged me to follow. The driver and his passenger were Buddhist monks. Beside me, the old nomad continued to chant, his prayer wheel spinning and spinning. I buried my head into my coat as we cruised past the first checkpoint. Si came into sight a white-and-gold wonderland surrounded by snowy mountains. We passed a second checkpoint, this one more substantial than the last, with a large riot vehicle blocking half the road. It seemed I had gone by unnoticed. Then Langmusi awaited. I thanked the driver and continued alone. I found a room for the night in a creaking wooden guesthouse, but only stopped to leave my bags, for a swarm of people had had seduced my attention. They drifted uphill towards a distant monastery, all ages walked, from young novice monks with shaven heads and ruddy cheeks to time-worn old ladies, faces gnarled by the Tibetan winter. I joined their troops, and all people alike said hello. As we continued, open trucks full of worshippers were arriving in the village. Frozen bodies inched onto the roadside and converged with the pilgrimage. We passed below a golden archway and into the older part of town curbside cooks fired, fried an array of festive treats as lofty bellows pierced through the smoke and snowstorm from beyond. I followed a separate group of men, old and young, towards a small monastery across a stream. There I found a billowing chimney, and a group of female worshippers outstretched on the ground in reverent prayer. Other pilgrims circumnavigated the monastery as a group of men climbed a nearby hill from where the screams and bellows came. I pursued them up the slope, where, plagued by ceaseless snow, but inspired by pure delight, they hurled prayer flags and breathless howls into the blizzard, crying for good fortune for the year ahead. These flags swirled with the snow, the young men continued to roar, and I turned to behold a giant ancient monastery across the valley, where a huge crowd was gathering. Here the main celebration was underway. Locals formed a deep circle around a central stupa. Periodically, costumed Buddhists emerged from the monastery, some wearing helmets and carrying large spears, others wearing elaborate cloaks and deathly masks. They danced and swarmed and skipped. Beside them, 200 novice monks observed them. Tibetan longhorns blasted their rhythmic tune. Drums throbbed, the crowd chanted. Fires blazed, snowflakes fell. The wind whipped and roared and I watched, eyes agape the most spectacular thing I have ever seen. The celebrations continued for eight hours or more until the sun burned through the blizzard and set the colours of the town alive. During this time, I was constantly mobbed by friendly locals, delighted to host the only foreigner at their proud festival. A group of twenty young men surrounded me for half an hour and asked every curious question they could conceive. Where are you from? Are you a Buddhist? Do you like Tibet? Are you warm in those clothes? Do you need some dumplings? Do you have yaks in your country? Interrogation over, we huddled together into nightfall as the costumed dancers made way for fireworks, bonfires and feasting. When the evening chill returned, I said goodbye to my local companions and realised that I really did need some dumplings, having not eaten all day. That night... I settled in my sleeping bag as it reached minus five degrees Celsius inside my room. When I dozed among the ongoing fireworks, the dreamland inhabited that day by my body and that night by my mind was so alike in its wonder that I felt adrift in a state of imagination. Morning broke clarity. The quietness which pervaded Langmuci was unsettling. Gone were the fireworks and the horns and the drums. The chanting, the snowstorm, and the hilltop bellows. Gone was the cackle of the fire and the worshipful footsteps. All was truly silent. The otherworldly festival was now but a vivid slice of Langmusi's history, embedded only in my mind and in the memory card of my camera. Today, Langmusi again became a quiet Tibetan village in the mountains. Ordinary life resumed, yet my business here remained unfinished. Indeed, it was the mountains which first enticed enticed me to this settlement, and it was the mountains that formed today's agenda.
0: I believe. I believe that adventure sports will improve your health. I believe that adventure sports will improve your outlook on life. I believe that adventure sports will build community, heal families, and inspire children. I believe that adventure sports will improve this planet. And I believe that adventure is fun. Travis and I created the Adventure Sports Podcast because we believe that adventure sports can make a real difference in this world. The Adventure Sports Podcast creates joy, health, purpose, relationships, memories, and second chances. Do you believe? It is our goal in the new year to double the number of listeners to ASP. Why? To double the good the show is doing. We started this show on the last day of February nearly three years ago. So by the last day of February this year, we will be celebrating double the joy, double the health, double the memories, and double the second chances. This is our challenge to you. Do you believe? Join with us, tell others about the show, Tell them about the 340-plus episodes of stories, examples, and inspiration. Tell them about this resource that is there for them to explore and encounter. Kickstart their adventure. Kickstart a life. It's official. Winter has arrived. And Bent Gate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Volley, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in Avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events.
2: You know, we might be smack dab in the middle of winter these days, but spring is really just right around the corner. Make sure you've got one of our lightweight camp stoves ready to go in your pack for when the weather starts turning warmer. Both the 180 stove and the 180 flame are designed to burn the abundant wood fuels you find on the ground instead of requiring you to haul in heavy, messy camp fuels. Take a minute to head on over to our site at www.180tack.com to check out these American-made stoves that are built to last. You'll be helping us, and you'll be helping the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks, guys.
1: packed my winter gear once more, and breakfasted on a second helping of dumplings from my guest house. I took the same route through the village that i had followed upon yesterday's arrival. This time, I walked alone. As I reached the great monastery, a couple of young monks were sweeping away the festival debris. The fires beside them breathed a dying white smoke. I continued past a second monastery, whose encircling prayer wheels stood dormant. In the distance now, I spied the opening of a narrow gorge, pierced by the stream which splits the village. Here I saw people. There was a group of four ladies with two children. I caught them as they ambled across the water. Just here, a cave entrance was adorned in prayer flags and the remnants of a fire. I thought back to the cave shrines of Lao. Beyond the cave, water seeped from where the upper part of the stream was frozen. It was at this juncture where the group of ladies halted. They each knelt towards a freezing stream and washed their hands and faces. This was clearly sacred water. I walked on along the gorge to reach an expanse of untouched snow. I realized that I was being followed. A little mongrel dog stood behind me, head tilted and eyes wide. He was only small, but he had a curious and loyal-looking face. He stopped a short distance from me and stared. I named him Nomad. Come on, Nomad, I said. You can come with me. My target was a mountain named Hu Shen Shan at 4,200 metres. There was no marked trail to this summit, but like most of my climbs so far, it felt intrepid, and the solitude was exciting. I was standing in a small snowy basin, surrounded by cliffs on most sides, with a couple of mountain buttresses and thin valleys. Nomad was unwilling to help with navigation, so I opted to climb directly up a slope coated in tough juniper bushes. We climbed for two hours before reaching a small cliff face, up which we needed to scramble. I went first and waited at the top for Nomad. He looked up at me, paused on the lowermost ledge. Come on, Nomad. Nomad sat down. All right, I sighed. Wait there. I climbed back down and tried to help Nomad up the cliff but he wouldn't let me get near him. He was astray, unused to human contact. I'm trying to help you, Nomad. I don't want to leave you here. Nomad clawed at the rock before retreating with a moan. I'm sorry, I said. I need to carry on, but I'll come back for you soon. I climbed back up the cliff and left poor Nomad behind. For the next half an hour, all I could hear were the echoes of Nomad's barks and cries. After five hours of climbing, I reached the fairly simple summit of Hu Gai marked by prayer flags, and from there could observe the infinite highlands of Tibet. The cold was perishing up here, so I turned back after just a short rest. On my return, though, I somehow missed my previous trail and began following a steepening snow gully between two cliffs. At one point, I had no option but to jump ten feet down onto a thin pile of snow, My crampon twisted on a rock, and one of its spikes stuck in my calf of my other leg. I went on with dark clouds gathering overhead. The landscape suddenly felt quiet and forbidding. Footprints in the snow reminded me that bears and wolves roam these mountains too. My water bottle had frozen many hours ago. My urine was brown and I felt dehydrated. The condition worsened by altitude. I knew the bearing I needed to take, but now my options were limited to this gully. I could not safely climb back, nor up the cliffs which surrounded me. I could only go down. It was a slow and nervous descent. I had no ropes. I could only use my crampons and ice axe to descend steep, loose snow and sudden rock faces. In moments like these, one considers all the implications of a fall. There is no mountain rescue here. Nobody knows where I am. I have no signal on my phone. The mountains are deserted and nightfall, with its lethal code, is approaching yet there naught nought-like stark danger to bring rigid focus. I completed the descent after several uncertain moments, and was thankful to reach the snow basin at the, by the frozen stream. Most happily of all, I saw no man's little footprints aiming back along the water. He had made it to safety. I passed the sacred bathing area and the cave shrine to sight the village once more. It was now as dusk approached that Langmusi, offered me its final spectacle, this time revealed with the sight of vultures. Langmusi is one of few remaining Tibetan communities where sky burials are still practiced. Tibetan Buddhists hold the belief that when a person dies, their soul leaves the body, rendering the corpse an empty vessel. By offering one's body back to nature, a person conducts a final act of selflessness, and in turn completes the circle of life. After a funeral ceremony, bodies of the dead are taken to a holy burial site, usually on a hilltop. Their flesh and bones are hewn by a specially trained rugyopa, and their remains are left for the vultures and crows. Bones and teeth are ground with flour and fed to various animals, and in a short period of time, all that is left is the soul of the departed, liberated now. To be reborn. And so the vultures circled over the monastery upon the hill. I walked past, but chose not to encroach any further. This was not to avoid a gory sight, but through the belief that some of Tibet's mysterious practices deserved to reside beyond the realms of outside eyes. The evening served me with myriad emotions. I had evaded the grasp of the local law and sensed merriment, delirium and warmth, and tranquillity, sacredness and mortality, each of a great and everlasting order. These two days impelled profound thoughts about my own existence, and how I wished for it to play out. I reflected on all this all evening, knowing that I must leave Langmusi the next morning. Yet before I fell asleep, I settled that if nothing else, I needn't ever return to this obscure community, high upon a cold and hilly plain, to recall the eternalized magic of a town named Langmoussi. Thank you very much for listening, and tune in next time for another extract from my book, The Trail of the Mountain Folk, available to be purchased on my website, www.oliverfrance.com.
2: Thanks for tuning in to this segment from Ali France's book, The Trail of the Mountain Folk. If you missed Ollie's interview, we had him on the show for episode 330, so go back and find that. Be sure to tune in next Saturday for the next excerpt from his book. Until then, get out and have some fun.